Turn, if you would, to Psalm chapter 9. Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 9 is going to be a discussion about God and the things that God has done. Uh, from my count, and a lot of these double up, so I'm not sure of the exact number, but he's going to list 24 different things that God does, did, will do. And in the middle of that, he's going to talk about what he has done, he's going to talk about what the enemies are doing, and he's going to make a petition to God about what he would like God to do. It is interesting because I actually wanted to do Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 today and realized there was no way that I could do both of those, but I think it's an interesting contrast. Look at Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 10 is all about, God, where are you? Psalm 9 is all about, God, you're doing great things. Now, if I just read these things, I would certainly believe that these were written by different people. Okay? You have one guy who's Debbie Downer and is just always wondering where God is. That's Psalm 10. And then you have this guy in Psalm 9 that just is excited about everything that God has done for him. But the reality is David at least acknowledges what is true for all of us. And that is that some days you wake up and you go, wow, God's really in control. God's doing great things. It's a great day. And the next morning you wake up and it's, God, where are you? You pray and your prayers go and hit the ceiling and they fall back down and you go, God, why aren't you listening? But we, in our pious nature, want to hide one of those. Okay, we either want to hide the fact that we have the bad days or we sometimes want to hide that we have the good days lest somebody thinks we're puffed up. David is going to acknowledge that that is the human condition. We as human beings have the good days and we have the other days. But today we're going to talk about the good day. Okay. Psalm 9, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. In these two verses, he lists four things that he's going to do, that he, David, is going to do. He's going to give thanks. He is going to recount God's wonderful deeds. He's going to be glad, and he's going to sing praises. Now... You could probably have a lengthy discussion about these four items with regard to prayer, with regard to our everyday worshiping experience. But let's talk about a couple of them. I will give thanks to the Lord. Here's a hard question. What does it mean to give thanks to the Lord? You wake up this morning and you go, thank you. 
I know that's hard for some of us. Why is it hard for some of us? I know why it's hard, actually, because I've got this list of things that I want. Whatever it is, I'm not going to tell you what it is. It probably involves more books, though, and I don't need those. Yes, ma'am? Things we're entitled to, or we feel we're entitled to. So I've got this list of things, and guess what? God's not coming through for me. He hasn't given me everything on this list. Therefore, I am, shall we say, less grateful of all the things that God has given me. If I were to sit down and concentrate and think about those things that God has given me, I would be less resentful of all the things that God hasn't given me. I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that God is sovereign. God does know what it is that we need in order to be conformed, in New Testament terms, to the image of Christ. He knows what is best, even though we have this list and he's not measuring up. David acknowledges his thanks for what God has done for him. And you think, wait a minute, of course David would. He's king. I mean, who wouldn't want to be king, right? Have you forgotten all the Psalms that came before this and all the ones that are going to come after about David being chased by this guy and that guy? I mean, you would not want his life. You think your life is tough. But David, in the midst of all of this stuff, in the knowledge of everything that God has done for him, thanks God for what he has done. Kind of makes us look a little petty that we're unable to do that. I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Whole heart. How many of you have ever had a child or a grandchild or some other adult say, Thank you. They know they've been trained that they're supposed to say thank you. But their heart is not in it. I mean, you give them vegetables for dinner, and they know they're supposed to say thank you. But their heart is not in it. They really wanted something else. And so much of the time, that is the way we approach God. Thank you. I know I'm supposed to say thank you, but I really didn't like what was for dinner. Okay? That's the way we do it. But not David. I thank you with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I've mentioned in here before, um, if you read... Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And if you haven't read it, read it, you ought to. It is the story, the allegory of the man leaving the city of sin and going to the celestial city. And in, on his way, he encounters all kinds of difficulties. Dragons, giants, pits. He does all this. But every so often, he stops at an inn, and he meets up with fellow travelers. And do you know what these fellow travelers do? They recount 
what God has done to get them through all the trials and tribulations that have come before them. They recount the mighty deeds of God. In the Jewish setting of the Old Testament, repeatedly, God tells the people to remember, to remember and tell your children and to tell others when you celebrate the Passover, this is why you're doing it. When you sleep in your backyard in a tent, this is why you're doing it. When you celebrate this, you're remembering this. Not only are we oftentimes not thankful for what God has done, sometimes we just don't even remember. We don't think about it. And if we don't think about it, I can guarantee you we're not telling others what God has done. Yeah, but God hasn't saved me from the Philistines like he did David. I mean, that would be a great story, right? You're sitting around the campfire. What'd God do for you? Well, he saved me from the Philistines. Wow, that's great. Maybe God saved you from having to be saved from the Philistines. You know, that gives me more thanks than being saved from. But we don't remember. We don't think about. We don't recount the mighty deeds of God. Why? Back to being ungrateful. We just don't remember what he has done for us. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. We sing in church, right? Usually, sometimes. You do sing, right? In our modern congregational settings, sometimes I'm not sure everybody is singing. Let me give you a hint. You're supposed to be singing. Why are you supposed to be singing? Because singing is in a response to what God has done for you. Now, let me give you the harder one. When you're driving home, are you singing? That would be stupid. The guy in the car next to you would think you're crazy. No, in this day and age, he would just think you were on your phone. Why does David say, I sing, I am glad, and I sing? Because singing is the emotional response of praise to God that just has to burst out and say something. And that's what he is talking about. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have set on the throne giving righteous judgment. So here we begin the list of things that God has done. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before your presence. Before your presence. What does that mean? Okay. I'm sure you've seen some movie that has this scene, right? If you haven't, then I can suggest a few. Okay. In uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's the little child with the little knife. And all the enemies start running away from her. Why are they running away from her? Because she's a little girl and she has a little knife? No. Because back behind her is Aslan, who is the Christ figure of the story. And 
she is looking at them and they are looking at him. My enemies run because I'm the toughest dude on the planet. No! My enemies run because they are in your presence. You, God, are winning, fighting, completing, doing the battle. That's what he's saying. My enemies, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have set on the throne, giving righteous judgment. What does it mean when we see this imagery of God sitting on the throne? Now remember, you ready for this? We talked about this in the first lesson. The book of Psalm is poetry. As such, it uses imagery. Okay? The imagery of God sitting on his throne is an image of the power and sovereignty of God. God has the authority to be in charge of everything. And that's the image that we have with him sitting on his throne. Not only is he sitting on his throne, though, he is giving righteous judgment. What does that mean? Well, I'm reading a book about Chinese history or whatever it is. It's not a history book. It's a novel. And the guy, the magistrate, is on the throne, and he's giving judgment, and he's a louse. You slip him a few bucks, he'll give you the right answer. You slip his counselor a few bucks, he'll give you the right answer. He is sitting on the seat of judgment, but he's giving bad judgment. And I bet that if we studied world history and talked about kings and queens and sovereigns, we could find a lot of examples of that. No shortage of people sitting in the place of authority, yet being unrighteous. But you know what? With God, we don't have that problem. God is sitting on the throne of the universe. He is sitting on the throne, and he is distributing righteous judgment. Now, hmm, how many of you really want righteous judgment? Just a thought. I don't want to... I know you don't want unrighteous judgment. I know that. But we also need to acknowledge the fact that God, being righteous, is going to judge our sins too. He really is. Because you see, it's easy for me to sit here and think, yeah, that guy over there, no, I'm not pointing at you, but I could be. That person over there, they're a real louse. And I am better than they are. So if God, if you're grading on the curve, I am 10 points ahead of them. They're toast. I'm okay. But God doesn't judge on the curve. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Okay. 
His question is, the Bible says God is going to judge our sins, and that's a true statement. He also says that in the Bible that our, he's going to forget them as far as the east is from the west or whatever that passage is. How do you reconcile those two? Either A, I'm going to forget what you did, or B, I'm going to remember it and I'm going to zap you for it. But you see, when we believe that God is sitting on a righteous throne and he's going to judge unrighteousness, jumping ahead to the New Testament, jumping ahead to the book of Romans, what we understand is that our sin has been judged. It has been judged, and the penalty for that sin has been paid in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So it isn't that, oh, I'm just not going to, I'm going to pretend it's not there. It's been dealt with. So we can pray, God, thank you that you are the righteous judge of the universe, while at the same time acknowledging, thank you for the mercy that allows our sin to be judged in Christ. Therefore, we can enter the presence of a holy God. And therefore, huh? Okay. I'm 10 points above the curve. You were doing real good there. <laughs> you have rebuked the nations and have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't sound like a whole lot of New Testament love here. If you believe that God is going to judge the world, if you believe that we, through the righteousness of Christ, can be made righteous, then you also have to accept the fact that those who refuse to acknowledge him, either as individuals or as nations, are going to be judged accordingly. David is God's anointed. He is the king. Now, at this moment, I'm not sure where in his life this psalm was written, but we know where he's going to end up, right? As the king, when the nations around him attack him and the nation of Israel, they are attacking God's anointed. They are attacking, shall we say, God. So David is acknowledging that all these nations who think they're going to do so well attacking God's anointed are going to be in deep trouble. We sometimes want to be so nice that we don't think about what God is going to do to the nations of the world who refuse to acknowledge Him. Now remember, it's not us that's doing it. It's God that is executing judgment on these nations. You have rebuked the nations. What does it mean to rebuke? Well, we see this most clearly in the prophets 
who are sent by God to go to a nation and say, you know what? You're doing the wrong stuff. We have Jonah. We just finished a series of sermons on Jonah. Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, you're toast. God is going to zap you. In fact, it's the short, shortest sermon on history. He doesn't even tell them to repent. He just says, you're toast. That's a loose translation. That is what it means when God rebukes a nation. Now, in the case of Nineveh and their response to Jonah, guess what? They repented. But if you look at the prophets that went to Israel and the prophets that went to Judah after the kingdom divided, most of the time, the prophets yelled at them, spoke to them, demonstrated, and they got no response at all. When the nations refuse to accept the rebuke of God, judgment is coming. It just is. It is the way the universe is constructed. The fact that God would rebuke them is the mercy and the grace of, I'm going to give you a chance. Ah, you didn't accept the chance. What's going to happen? You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities were rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. There will come a time when the nations who rebelled against God will be forgotten. In fact, the only reason we remember them is because of the judgment of God that has been put on them. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. Here's the easy question. How long will God be on the throne? Forever. He's not going to get to the end of next week. He's not going to get to a year from now and just get tired and go home. He is going to be on the throne forever. You see, when we're dealing with earthly kings and queens, earthly sovereigns, there's always this battle going on. It can be an open battle. It can be an inner battle. But there's always this battle going on of who's going to be next. Okay? As the sovereign gets close to dying or just getting old, the sons start fighting, the neighbors start fighting. There's always this struggle of who's coming next. Guess what? The sovereign of the universe has no heir. Oh, wait a minute. We are joint heirs, but he's not going anywhere. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. How is he judging the people righteously? Why is this, why is this something that David believes is something to be glad about, to sing about. 
We live in a world that is full of unrighteousness. You have any questions about that? I mean, you can open the newspaper, you can turn on the TV, you can talk to your next door neighbor. The world as we know it is full of unrighteousness. But we, I believe because we're made in the image of God, know that that's not right. I mean, we may debate about what right and wrong is, but we know that the way the world is working right now is not the way the world is supposed to work. And so to acknowledge the fact that God who is righteous will at some time judge the world righteously should give us hope. Now, it should scare the bejeebers out of us, if we have not accepted Jesus Christ as our source of righteousness. Because you see, if it's up to me, I'm not going to make the cut. I'm not 10 points above the curve. I'm 10 points below the curve. And God's not judging on a curve. But the acknowledgement that at some point the righteous judge will take care of all this unrighteousness in which we live should be a source of hope for all of us. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name Put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. What is a stronghold? Well, if I go back to ancient warfare or I go back to medieval warfare, the stronghold was the place of last defense. It was the strongest part of the castle. It was the prepared fortress. It was... The place where when things get really bad, we know we can go there and be safe. I'm sitting out here working my field, and I hear the enemies coming. Where do I go? To my mud hut? Probably not. I go to the castle because it is the stronghold in the midst of the tribulation and war that is about to hit us. David would have been very aware of this. David was always fleeing somewhere from someone. I'm running away. Where can I go and know that I'll be safe? And that's what David would do. But in reality, he knew that his stronghold, that place that he could run to when things are really bad, that stronghold is God himself. God is the person he's going to trust in to take care of him and to do what God has said he was going to do. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. Those who are suffering from what? the unrighteousness in the world in which we live. You ever feel oppressed? I mean, not that anybody's chasing you with a sword. They might be, but I don't think so. 
But you read the newspaper and you read the news and you just get this feeling that the world is just kind of closing in on you. And what does David tell us to do? Don't read the newspaper. No, wait. That's not what he tells us to do. What he tells us to do is to acknowledge that God is our stronghold. God is going to fight the battle. God is going to judge the unrighteousness of this world. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. I really did want to do Psalm 10, right? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Isn't that the way we feel at times? Isn't that how we feel? That sometimes God's hiding from us? But what does Psalm 9 say? You have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who are followers of God will not be forgotten. They will not be forsaken. It's not like God says one day, okay, I'm tired, you're on your own. You take care of it. You run your piece of the universe. Those who seek God will be, will be, will not be forgotten. Hmm. You ever feel forgotten? You ever feel like God's somewhere else? God's on a trip and you need him here right now? And he's just, go read Psalm 10. The reality is we feel sometimes that God's somewhere else on vacation. It is our faith that tells us, or doesn't tell us, it is our faith that tells us that God has promised and God will fulfill. It may not look like what we want it to look like. Remember the beginning of the lesson? I give thanks to God for everything that he's done, and we don't give thanks because we have a list and he's not doing the list. We think he has forsaken us because he hasn't given us what we want him to, forgive, to give us. But he never said he would give it to us. But he has said he will not forget you. He will not forsake you. He will be your stronghold and he will fight the battle for you. That's what he has said he will do. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Sing praises to the Lord, once again, who sits enthroned. Tell among the peoples his deeds. This is a repeat of what we had in the first two verses about our need to tell people what God has done. Here are the mighty deeds of God. Let's sit down and write a book. Don't write somebody else's book. You sit down and figure out what it is that God has done for you and then 
after you've figured that out, you thank God for that, and then you tell somebody else. At a minimum, you tell your family what God has done for you. But wait. Wine, wine, wine. He hasn't done wine, 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 wine. And that's where we live today. Why? Because God's not doing what we want God to do. And guess what? God doesn't have to do what you want God to do. Tell all the people about his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. That's a really strange phrase. He who avenges blood. You see, we live in a day with policemen and FBI agents and all these law enforcement people. And if somebody murders me, I hope, I pray that the police find the guy that did it, lock him up in jail. But you see, at this time of history, uh, there wasn't necessarily the law enforcement agencies. So what would happen? Well, somebody would kill me, and 10 of my best buds, probably male members of my family, would get their weapons and they would go get him. They would avenge the blood. It's interesting if you read about medieval English history, there was a time where you had to have, formally had to have, 10 buds that were going to take care of you if something happened to you. And if you didn't have 10, you had to pay a tax. Because if your best buds weren't going to take care of you, then the king was going to have to take care of you, and that was going to cost money. So the expectation was that your buds, your family members, would avenge your blood. And I might add, there's all kinds of interesting stories in the New Testament, I mean in the Old Testament, where God appoints certain cities that if you accidentally kill someone, then you can flee to one of those cities and the avengers of blood could not come get you. Now, what they could do is they could stand at the city gates and they could say, uh, wait a minute, he whacked my father in the head with an axe when my father wasn't doing anything. And the people in the city of refuge would say, you know, that doesn't sound like an accident. Here, taking. There was a trial. The avenger of blood was the one who went after the person who killed somebody. Let's look at that imagery again. He who avenges blood, who is the he in this passage? God. He who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. I am the poor guy and somebody steals my meager stuff. And I think there's nobody that's going to bring me justice. And this passage is saying, God says, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Now, I might add, we collectively as a society 
We collectively as humanity, in particular, we as believers, have been given the task of protecting who? The afflicted. We have been given the task of helping those who are unable to help themselves. Just an aside that you need to think about. The avenger of blood, God will take care of them. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift up from the gates of O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount your praise, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. He finally gets to actually asking God for something. God be gracious to me. What does it mean to be gracious to someone? to show them grace and to show them mercy. Now, this is the fascinating thing in all this to me. He is recounting everything that God has done and will do. In fact, he's not finished yet. Why does he ask God for something? He asks him for something because of what God has already done, because of what he has remembered that God has done, and in remembering he has faith that God will do what God has promised that God will do. This isn't just something he made up out of the blue. He knows that God wants to be gracious. He knows that God has been gracious, and he turns to God and says, God, be gracious. He is praying on the basis of his acknowledgement of what God has done. Now, back to the start of the lesson. We give thanks for what God has done. We tell what he has done to other people. We, we tell to other people what God has done for us. Without that, without the acknowledgement of who God is and what God does, we are fishing around when we get to the point of asking God to do what we need him to do for us. David doesn't have that problem. God, I mean, David knows what God has done, and he uses that in order to determine what he asked God to do for him. God is a gracious God. I'll ask for grace. Life is good. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. I am being afflicted. Wait a minute. I know a God. I know a God who watches over the afflicted. Guess what? I can ask God to help me in the midst of my affliction. That's what he's asking right here. O oh, you who lift me up from the gates of death, why? Why would God let him off the hook? So that he may recount your praises, that in the gates of the daughters of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Quick question. Whose salvation is it? It's not David's, it's God's. It is God's gift to David. That's the salvation he wants. Let me just speculate, and that's all this is. If we are doing a lousy job of verses 1 and 2, we're not giving thanks, 
We're not telling the mighty deeds of God. We're not exalting in him. We're not singing his praises. Maybe God will just stop giving us new stuff until we can remember what he's already done for us. I don't know. That's pure speculation on my part. Why does David ask, or what does David say he will do when God answers his prayer? He says, I'm going to go tell everybody. I'm going to sit at the gate and tell people what God has done for me. So David is telling the people what God has done for him in the past. He is, pra he is praising God. He is telling God, do something else, and I'll tell the people about that. Hmm. And we sit over here and whine and whine and whine and whine. No. That's what we do. That I may recount your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. Back to the enemies. I love this phrase. The nations have sunk in the pit that they themselves have made. They have caught their foot in the net that they themselves have made. You know, I believe in the judgment of God. I do. I believe God can zap anybody he wants and righteously do it. But this is kind of implying that they're digging their own hole. You know, it's like you dig a hole and then night times comes and it's dark and you're walking and you fall into the hole. Whose fault is that? You dug the stupid hole. And that's what they did. The book of Proverbs talks about, you know, the, the foolish people coming and saying, hey, let's lay a trap for somebody. Let's catch them. Let's take all their stuff. And it says they'll fall into their own trap. Let me give you a hint. When individuals, when peoples, when nations think that they can construct a society apart from God, when they think they can construct a life apart from God, they are digging a pit that eventually they will fall into. There is no utopia at the end of that path. It just doesn't exist. It is like you digging a pit in your backyard. We dug a pit in our backyard last night, yesterday, but it was only six inches deep, so it's not going to kill us. They dig a pit thinking they're going to catch someone else in that pit. And the only thing they're going to catch is themselves. We keep getting back, because I just love that verse in Psalm 2. The nations rage against God, and God just sits over there and chuckles. I'm digging a pit, and I'm going to trap God. I am going to prove that God, God's ways don't work. I'm going to do that. And guess what? God just sits there and waits for them to fall in the hole. Their feet get caught in the net and they are powerless to overcome it. 
The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. One more request that, God, that David has. Arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I like that last sentence. Let the nations know that they're just mortals. Here's God, and they're, they're way down there, way, way down there, are the nations that war against him. What is he saying? He's telling them in the last verse, God, reveal your fear. Put them in fear, O Lord, and let the nations know that they are but men. Here's what we need to remember. Write this down. This is important. There is a God, and you're not it. <laughs> and if you haven't figured that out, Back to verse 1. You're not going to give thanks to God. Why? Because God's not doing what you want. You're not going to recount his mighty deeds because he didn't do what you wanted him to do. You're not going to praise him. You're not going to sing praises because you think you're hot stuff. Because you're 10 points ahead on the curve. But let me tell you, there's God in his heavenly throne sitting on the throne in righteous judgment. And you, you, you are mere mortal. You're not even metaphysically in the same category. You know, this isn't Zeus that's just kind of a bigger guy. It's not just some Roman Greek God that's just like you, only more. God is, well, there's nothing other to say than God. That's all he is. <laughs> and that's more than you. We as human beings need to reflect that we are but mortal. The next time you go to a funeral, remind yourself, everything that I've done, what will it mean at this point in my life? What David is pleading with God to do is to remind the people that all they are is mortal. And you go, that's a downer message. No, because we have a God who sits on the righteous throne who will judge the world. And the question becomes, will we be on his side or the other side? Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the mighty deeds that you have done. I pray, Lord, that we would rem remember them, that we would give you thanks. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.